you should always be positive and affirming that if it's what you need to do as a person or a population or a community or a family, I will support. And that's what I mean about positive disruptor. We all need disruptions at times because the, the world moves forward. Welcome to the Happy Nurse Podcast. Nurses are the backbone of healthcare, always there to care for strangers as if they were one of their own, often forsaking special moments with their own family in order to ensure another's loved one is being cared for. As nurses, self-care is essential. I am Elena Mullery, nurse educator and self-care mentor for nurses. I'm an RN with 20 years of clinical experience, a first-hand experience of stress and burnout. It was this experience which led me to develop a passion for personal development and pursue the study of mindfulness, meditation, hypnotherapy, and neuro-linguistic programming. Each episode, I will be promoting self-care strategies to those who always care for others. I have broken self-care down into five aspects mental, emotional, physical, spiritual, and indulgence, to make it easy to ensure all your self-care needs are being met. Each episode, I will interview nurses and self-care gurus from around the world to help you with each aspect of your self-care. Welcome to the Happy Nurse Podcast with Elena Mullery. Hi everyone, welcome to this episode of the Happy Nurse Podcast. I'm Elena, as you all know, and today I'm very excited to have joining me on the podcast, Kenny Gibson. Welcome to the show, Kenny. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me, Elena. I should explain to the listeners who you are. Kenny is actually the national head of safeguarding of the NHS, and he has been since 2018, following a very extensive career. Your career just, it's wow factor, Kenny. Uh, Thank you. It's humbling to hear that. Yes. The, The only thing about it is I'm still back in 1980 when I was a laundry assistant in a mental health unit. So I've got a lot of imposter syndrome, Elaine. And the more you say that, the more the bigger the imposter syndrome is. But thank you. Thank you for the wow. I think imposter syndrome gets us all at times, doesn't it? You hear people reading oh, stuff yes. and you think, are they talking about me? Yes, absolutely. So- <laughs> I'm going to start at the beginning, 1980. You just said a mental health hospital. Was that King's Seat by any chance? No, it wasn't, although I was a student of King's Seat. It was actually Cornhill. Oh, okay. It was actually Cornhill in the centre of Aberdeen. I went there as a laundry assistant before I became a a care assistant there. So I loved my time at, uh, well, I loved my time at King's Seat, but I loved it at Cornhill, yes. I remember doing placements at Cornhill when I was a student. It was, yeah, I enjoyed that too. Yeah, I should share with the listeners, Kenny actually did his training in Aberdeen at the same nursing college as I did. So this is where we've got this connection. So as you said, you started as a laundry assistant in 1980, straight from school. Is that right? That's right. And then you became a care assistant, but you went to night school at the same time to get enough qualifications to get you into nursing college. That's right. So I was never much use at school. 
I didn't know what to study because I come from a very tiny village north of Aberdeen called Gardenston or Gamery. And uh, all men were, were expected to leave and join the fishing. And I thought there must be more to life than fishing, deep sea fishing for a week. Uh, so I looked towards my uncle John, who was a mental health nurse and a few cousins and an auntie who was an a &E sister of the broch, Fraserborough. And I thought, oh, I wouldn't mind being a nurse. But I uh, uh, I didn't know what to study. So anyway, I left school with no O-levels. And um, I was I was in a, I remember it. I was in the laundry, the big industrial laundry at the mental health unit. And we had the, the sort of patients or inmates, as they were called then, uh, come and work for us. And this nursing officer came down to uh, just have a look around. And she came up to me and she said, I see something in you. You're listening to the patients. And I said, it's fascinating what they tell you. As, as they're folding the sheets. And, and uh, she's, would you like to become a nurse? I thought, of course I would, of course I would. So she encouraged me to go to night school and get the two hires and the, the five O-levels you needed then to get into nurse training at Forest Hill College. And, uh, I mean, that was just that moment. I'll never forget it, you know. I, I didn't really have a teacher at school that inspired me to do that and certainly nothing, nothing at home inspired me to become a nurse because of the gender issues. But that woman at that point, whilst folding the sheets, inspired me. So here I am. She changed the trajectory of your life, hey, just by saying that to you. She did. She changed the trajectory. Uh, otherwise, I would have been a, a very rich fisherman for a few years, driving a very fast car for a few years, and then settling down. I, I wouldn't have had the chance to travel the globe and meet the family of nurses that I've met and be inspired by the patients I've met and their carers. So, yes, uh, I will always humbly owe everything I've got to, uh, to Cherry. Oh, bless her. Have you ever told her that? Oh, yes, frequently, yes. Fre frequently on Facebook and sometimes in person. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I've got someone who was very influential in my early nursing career, too. And I reached out to her again recently. She was the sister of the recovery unit at Albine Hospital. She still is, in fact. I did mm -hmm. some of my early years there. And I remember her teaching me and she was so like, strong and passionate about me knowing this because of the muscle relaxants. I had to know about the neuromuscular junction and how it worked and that. Anyway, I'm now studying psychology, like I shared with you. And one of the units I'm doing at the moment is biological psychology. And it's talking about the neuromuscular junction. And I can hear Shirley's <laughs> voice in my head. And I texted and I went, all that stuff you taught me, I'm now learning again in my degree. <laughs> Excellent news. Well, no, I, I mean, uh, Cherry and I had many touch, many touch points, particularly on uh, Facebook, uh, friends of Royal, Co uh, friends of First Hill College, but also um, just I wasn't stalking her, but ever wherever she went, I seemed to apply for jobs. Oh, how <laughs> so, funny! Like her protege. Uh, uh, well, yes, uh, if only. But yes, I, I think these these people. There's been a lot of humbling experiences, but I think that more than anything, that's what nurse leaders bring, that sort of compassion that you never forget. People yeah, see definitely. something in you and you never forget them. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. So you went to Forrester Hill College and then yeah. you did some staffing roles in Aberdeen. Was that at ARI? 
No, uh, I've always worked in community and uh, care of the elderly units and mental health units. So I was a a bank staff nurse at Royal Cornhill. I was a staff nurse at Woodend Hospital, care of the elderly mainly. I've always been fascinated not by the acuteness emergency ward 10, but the reablement side of nursing. It's always fascinated me that... The point of contact as a nurse I have, and still do, there's been a journey before it, a life course before it, that I love I love understanding, whether it's the physical, the emotion, the faith, the, the spiritual, whatever lens that they want to talk about. But I'm also very cognizant of the fact that they need a sustainable recovery after their point of contact with me. So, yes, it, I, I basically staffed in uh, rehab units, reablement units, and care the elderly units. That's a beautiful way to look at it. I've never thought of it like that before, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's certainly borne born witness to uh, my job now as listening to trauma and listening to abuse and neglect and exploitation and violence is I have this constant need to remind everyone that works in healthcare or any compassionate industry your moment matters because that person has had a life course. I call it shit life syndrome, but it could also be positive, constructive, affirming life. And But you cannot create a codependency on you to be their saviour. You've got to give them options to thrive in their own life back at home. So, yes, it's, it's a construct that is very mental health in its, its view, very psychologically based in its, in its uh, evidence base. Yeah, I love it. It almost, it's like that, um, I was just reading an article about this earlier, actually, the negative impact of that angel hero persona that we get given as nurses, you know, that creates that codependent relationship with us. It, it does, and, and sometimes so much so that uh, if members of the public or patients see you as their angel or Saviour. Some people don't like using the word saviour. It all builds into this Cartman's drama triangle philosophy yeah. and psychological process that if if we inspire a codependency between the patient and ourselves and they don't recover or they don't recover to a satisfactory level, then we will then be the perpetrator of abuse. So we can flip between this angel and demon quite quickly Mm. as the the person's clinician. So I I always urge caution to that. Do all you can, but remember you have a therapeutic relationship and, and that's often impacted by health psychology or grief or processes. Yeah, most definitely. I work in PACU, so, you know, my moments with patients are very fleeting, but I think mm-hmm. a, lot of, a lot of patients don't even remember speaking to me because they've had, you know, midazolam and the like. <laughs> I'll see them later in the day in the corridor and I'll be like, hey, how are you going? And they look at me as if to say, who are you? <laughs> but yeah, we've had this huge interaction, but their subconscious will know who I am, of course. Oh, absolutely. And particularly if, they, if they're in the midazolam state, uh, disclose something about themselves in that sort of haze of midazolam, which is uh, yeah. another interesting moment for, for, for nurses in your position. Yes, most definitely. But yeah, it's a, I, I love what I do. I think it's a real Excellent. honour to get to look after people recovering from it surgery. It is. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm. 
Yeah. So from Aberdeen, you did some time in Edinburgh as well, did you? I did. I went down to Edinburgh. Um, I worked in Dunfermline, but I worked uh, looking in mental health, really. And it was um, we, we also covered things like the suicide prevention on the Fourth Road Bridge. You oh, know? wow. So, yes. Yeah. Uh, but no one knows where Dunfermline is. So you always say Edinburgh and people know better. You know, when, when you're traveling globally and you say Dunfermline, they go, eh? And uh, so you say near Edinburgh. So we, we worked between Dunfermline and Edinburgh as mental health nurses. So again, it was about that range of clients that you saw, both with depressive illnesses, psychosis, into wanting wanting to take their own lives. Yeah, and I imagine there would probably have been quite a few suicides off the Fourth Road Bridge over the years. There was. There, there's a regular rhythm to them, uh, oh, interestingly, but then... That, that's no different to the regular rhythm of people uh, self-harming, serious yeah. self-harm and, and people, just those cries for help. Mm. Um, so, you know, there is seasonal adjustment to it, as we, as we all know. And certainly COVID has shown a light that uh, self-killing, as we now refer to it uh, in the UK. If you enjoy meditating or you would like to give meditation a try, why not head on over to happynurse.com.au forward slash meditation to download my free guided meditation for stress and anxiety relief. It's 12 minutes of pure self-care. As health practitioners, we need to know ourselves, don't we? The self-awareness oh, is so important. And yes. It's something that I didn't realise in the early days of my career, to be honest. I think it's something we should be taught more at university. I I think I think it should, and I think that's the the age range when you're actually mature enough to be pastorally supported to do so. There's a couple of units on self awareness for my counselling degree, and I just I was reflecting on it, and I thought I would have really benefited from this twenty odd years ago when I was studying nursing. So, yeah. What we're doing is uh, waiting to people qualify before we do postgraduate psychology understanding self. And particularly in COVID, uh, we're having to invest in post-traumatic or resilience-based supervision. Now, that's simply, how do I feel? Mm-hmm. How does this incident make me feel? And I, I appreciate the investment across uh, nursing and, and the, the medical and allied health professions in it. Yeah, it's so true. And it's something that I've ad- started advocating for over here as well, whenever I speak to people of influence in nursing in Australia. I, I chatted recently with Mark Aiken. I don't know if you know him. He's the stakeholder and engagement manager for an organisation over here called Nurse and Midwife Support. Mm-hmm. And him and I had a big conversation about this too, about introducing some kind of self-awareness counsel. It's like closing off that stress loop, you know what I mean? Instead of holding it all inside, we need to have an outlet for it. I agree that, that sort of outlet and closing off the loop, but more importantly, you know, every nurse and particularly those with experience, we are a system leader. And in England, there's about to be a public inquiry. Okay. And it it would not be, I mean, that's a massive thing, 
And the one thing that strikes me about public inquiries is it's an opportunity for every single one of us, absolutely every single one of us, to be able to be have defensible decisions. So if Kenny Gibson hears something, he has a duty to react constructively to that. And it is an indefensible, it's a abhorrent decision not to step up these process. We're not demanding people go to them, but you cannot listen to trauma, whether it's physical trauma, abusive trauma, exploitation trauma, or shit life trauma. You cannot listen to that from a colleague or indeed from a patient and not step something up. You've got to listen, you've got to believe it, and then you've got to do something with it. We have a duty to do that. And, you know, if you didn't, then it's not defensible. Yeah, that's interesting that you speak about that because I've never really thought about it before and the duty behind it because here in Australia, as a nurse, a teacher, anyone in that caring profession, you know, kind of frontline with people, if we are witness to something like you just described, we are all classed as mandatory reporters. And if we don't like report it or forward it on to the necessary departments we can actually face imprisonment that's how serious it is mm. over here i mean that yeah. would be that would be really the the way to go is is about escalating or passing it on uh, i mean we do have some programs for that obviously child abuse child neglect child protection we've got female genital mutilation we've got modern slavery and human trafficking uh, we're about to have domestic abuse and violence we're about to have tackling serious violence such as gangs and life life changing trauma or life threatening trauma but you know for me, probably because I'm steeped in mental health and psychology, is I think we, we need to bear witness to each other's trauma, you know. And more importantly, when someone, be it a, a citizen, a patient or a colleague, comes to us with trauma, it's humbling to listen to. It is hugely humbling to listen to. But you're right, there should be... The, the blend between a, a duty, a mandate and a construct to say, I need to pass this on. You know, I need to, I need to, I believe you and now I need to do something alongside you. I, I can't be your rescuer. I think the thing for me about trauma and all situations is as a nurse, I cannot be in everyone's bedroom when these sorts of things kick off. I mustn't, I mustn't create that codependence on me. I don't do it with patients. I will not do it with colleagues. But we have a duty to signpost people to where they can find their own option, you know, because in, in, the, in the life cycle of trauma, psychological, physical or other trauma, what, I, what I'm humbled by, absolutely humbled, is the wealth of peer advocacy services that have been set up by victims and survivors who have become champions. I mean, there are some of the most incredible citizens and nurses have set up support groups and peer advocacy groups and listening groups. It is, it is astonishing the energy as they've come out of their trauma as a victim, become being a survivor and then felt the, the, the sort of mojo to become a thriver and champion or warrior. It's truly inspiring what some of these people have, have gone through. And, uh, you know, I, I often signpost people to these because 
I've not been in their unique situation. I, I've never faced domestic abuse and violence, but I've listened to m many. And uh, yes, so it's about listening to it, trying to get them to appreciate that there is recovery, but they need to find their own route out of it. And that's about options. It's about strength-based approaches. So, yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, and it is very humbling. And these people are, as you say, they're they're amazing individuals who set up these foundations. And oh, yeah. incredible, incredible! Particularly, particularly some of the women who are mothers. I mean, just there's some incredible women out there that have not only set this up, but they set it up in the adversity of being against their own faith group. I mean, some of the Muslim women who have set up things like Karma Nirvana, which is our equivalent of uh, honour-based abuse in Muslim families, I mean, they, they've had m women in their group disown them, It's, it's in, in their faith disown them. They've really, they've really gone against the social norms by challenging the unconscious bias that some abuse is acceptable and some exploitation is expected. You know, I have so much admiration for them. That takes huge courage and vulnerability to do that. Yes, it does. It does. Yeah, amazing people. So if we go back to your, your careers, giving yes. us a good storyline here. <laughs> so you then got your research mojo. Yes. Because you did some research facilitation and training. I did. Uh, again, Cherry. Cherry was essence to that. She was, she was then, uh, I think she was head of human resources at the time. So as I know, she went into HR and I followed her. Not, not deliberately, but. Yeah. So I did facilitation looking at standard setting in two or three hospitals in Aberdeen, Woodend and the city hospital where there used to be inpatient units down there and um, I was really interested in how you facilitate research by making it real so yes I, I did a BSc I then extended that to an MSc and uh, lo and behold a PhD so it's been that continuous stream of research whilst being paid full time to be a facilitator, first of all. We now call them quality leads, but we call them facilitators at the time. It seemed a bit more natural in Aberdeen to call people facilitators, um, into being a tutor, into being a lecturer, and onto uh, middle senior management. So um, I've been really lucky that at the time of my facilitator, trainer, education, leadership-type roles, the NHS-funded academic studies. That's wonderful. I know, it's a um, lucky time, Aberdonian sense of go-getting and inspirational people that I worked with. It was right then to do it. So, yes, it's been a, academia has been a journey for me, yeah. But they've got a massive return on their investment because look at you now, hey? <laughs> well, yes, uh, look at me. I'm still that laundry assistant in 1980, though. I'm still the, the game recloon that uh, left school with no levels. But yes, I mean, part of what I've had to learn to do in that sort of journey is position positivity because... 
for me, particularly in the NHS, there are moments of horribleness. And in life, there's moments of shit life syndrome. But generally, what I've learned is that there's an awful lot to be happier about. There's an awful lot that connects us than disconnects us. Um, so, yes, uh, whether it's my day job or whether it's my life course, it has turned me around from being a very isolated, non-thinking, compliant young lad from a tiny village into this person that has travelled the globe, met a gazillion people and taken some something from each of those people and blended it into this evolving voice that, um, you know, is proud of what nurses are, uh, and determined not to be silenced. If something is right, it's the right thing to say. So, yes. Yeah, most definitely. I totally agree on that. Is that where you come from with your um, positive disruptor? I love that when you've written on your form. <laughs> I'll, I'll start from the start. So Kenny filled out this form for me before he came on. Um, the show and on it he said he believes that each one of us should one make and carry our own weather and sunshine two we can do anything but not everything and three we need to be inspired to be a positive disruptor I absolutely love these and I'd love to chat about them more all right so first of all bring your own bring your own sunshine yes you know I, I've met people that are half a uh, half a uh, cup half empties my village was full of them. Every village is full of them. <laughs> so because they never, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you know, every village is full of them, but the world isn't. Yeah. Uh, so yes, uh, bring your own weather, create a ray of sunshine, and in some ways, that's where I, I wear yellow, and my backgrounds are yellow and vibrant, etc. Because for me, I have a duty to inspire hope. You know, whether it's COVID, whether it's public health emergencies or whether it's dire situations in life, my job is to bring hope. And you can only bring hope by being positive about future. Recognising not all futures will be hopeful in the start, but uh, hope in yellow, very, very positive. A cup half full type of person. Mm. Um, in terms of... I can do anything but everything. I've been in places where I've worn myself to exhaustion and my resilience to cope with life has been such that I've turned to dysfunctional ways to cope. You know, I've been clubbing all night. I've been out with friends all night. I, you know, I've not taken sick days, but almost nearly did. Yeah. Um, because... My only way to cope was to get the sort of excess balance in your social life compared to the ex excess stress in your work life. So I've had to learn that I can do anything but not everything at the same time. The other one about positive disruptor is what I've learned from my facilitator role. I think it's really critical that if you're going to change, if you're going to change things to be more evidence-based, then you've got to carry a mojo with you. You cannot do it by diktat. You cannot write a law, a legislation. You've got to go into people's workplace or homes or communities. You've got to listen to them. 
Mm-hmm. And then you've got to disrupt. You've got to unfreeze stuff. You can't get a new normal unless you go through some of the trials and tribulations of unfreezing things. And for disruption, then provided you're not being nasty about it or prejudiced about it or racist about it, then you should always be positive and affirming that if it's what you need to do as a person or a population or a community or a family, I will support. And that's what I mean about positive disruptor. We all need disruptions at times because the, the world moves forward. Nursing moves forward. Protocols and processes move forward. Whatever, you, whatever you'd like to name has to move forward and evolve. And I would always say be a positive, affirming disruptor or a pirate. Some people call them pirates. So if you work in organisations like NHS Horizons, that's a facilitator-led organisation, then they are pirates or new power. If you work in fabulous NHS stuff, which is uh, uh, Roy Lilly's organisation, where you can be a volunteer ambassador, then you are, you're an ambassador for fabulousness. Mm-hmm. And you you have to learn you have to learn a new language if you want people to stop and listen to this facilitative permissive rather than didactic diktat you you've got to own the floor you've you've got to be present and i often like it to believe it or not the queen mother and her hats or- yeah the queen the queen mother owned the space because she wore bright colors flowy dresses and floppy hats. Now, I'm not saying in my imposter syndrome, I'm the queen mother, but you you have got to, you've got to go in there being a radiator rather than a drain. You've got to go into that team or that group or that meeting, giving a bit of mojo, sharing a bit of how fabulous the world is, because otherwise, the drains will just absorb you down. So it is a form of acting, I suppose, but I firmly, it's here, it's visceral for me, is I'm paid to be a positive affirming rebel, pirate, disruptor, and I need to leave a bit of positivity, sunshine, light with that person just to see them through the next hour or the next day until they can feel their own mojo. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love that term. It's kind of how I see myself a bit. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I've put myself on this mission to try and reduce nurse burnout. <laughs> so I'm like trying to work out how I'm going to do it in the next like 20 odd years I've got left of my career. So yeah, it started with this, this degree I'm now studying in psych and counselling. Yeah, and it's so important. I mean, you ooze positivity, you know, from your contact. I mean, you are bold enough and brave enough and courageous enough to contact me via social media platform. That takes courage and therefore that boosts your morale, uh, your motivations, etc. And I think that the world of social movement is one of these positive affirming disruptors is that nurses 
whether you work in Australia or whether you work in London, you know, we all have, we've got far less than seven points of connection, haven't we? Yeah. Um, we've got the, the family of nursing, the compassion of each other, the, the ability to listen, the ability to accept a reach out as well. And I think once you've got that, then you can begin to listen to colleagues that aren't feeling as lucky as we are, who aren't feeling as aspired as we are, and who are feeling cortisol more than adrenaline, who are feeling stress more than passion or compassion. So uh, I think you're right. It, it, it's time that we use these digital connections to re-establish that we've more that connects us than separates us. And that in itself will help burnout. I, I think the other thing we've got to do is begin supporting nurses to look to see what it is that burns out because invariably it could be work. Yeah. But it may it may not be work. Yeah, through exactly. the through the lens of me, myself and I, it might be it might be home that's burning us out. It yeah. could be an abusive relationship elsewhere that's burning us out. It could be bullying at, at work or socially that's burning us out. So, yes, uh, I, I think you've chosen a really important issue of burnout at a time when we're exhausted. We're genuinely, I've never, I've never seen so many colleagues exhausted. And it's really quite dangerous. Yeah, I can't even imagine what it must be like over there. I've listened to my old colleagues, you know, who work at ARI and that, heard what they've been going through. And yeah, I can't comprehend it because here, in, like I'm in Perth in Western Australia. And I don't know if you know much about what's happened here with COVID, but they just, they shut the international border to Australia. And then our premier shut the interstate border as well. So we've been in this little bubble. We've had four lockdowns. The longest one was four weeks. The most recent one was five days. You know, we've got no COVID in the community whatsoever here. Mm -hmm. So I have no kind of comprehension of what's going on over there in England. It just, it blows yes. my mind even thinking about it. Yes. I mean, there is the, there is the burnout of busyness mm -hmm. and hecticness and exhaustion of that. And it has been exhausting. Um, um, but there's also the, 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 the trauma of lockdown and pressure cooker homes, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, whenever you unlock after a pandemic, you'll see family strife for at large. You know, we, we are, we're expecting increased separations and divorces as loving partners have been together for too long, for too long, too intensively. Okay. We've certainly seen, we've certainly seen burnout where, you know, practitioners looking at child abuse are seeing more blood force trauma. Mm -hmm. uh, because baby or the child has been caught between the warring adults, between the fractious adults, I know. And we've also seen increased uh, burnout with uh, serious self-harm because nurses by nature, uh, uh, amongst nurses and, and all clinicians, if you're not working, we get lonely very quickly. 
And loneliness can be just as much a burnout as pressure cooker lockdown in homes as the intensification of ITU or home care wearing two layers of PPE and sweating litres of fluid. So I think there's loads of types of burnout that need to be investigated because nurses are supposed to be compassionate at all times, but if we are burning out compassion for our patients, let alone burning out compassion for self, then we are in a serious, serious position as, a, as an organisation. And I think that's back to the point we discussed earlier on. We've got to understand self and self-resilience and self-coping before we can go back into our business as normal and be compassionate to our patients with self, each other and patients uh, all at the same time is going to be a tremendous stress and pressure. Yeah, I I understand where you're coming from there. I always speak about the importance of self-compassion and offering ourselves the same compassion we so freely give to others because we tend to forget about ourselves. We're quite happy to be compassionate to everyone else, but we forget to offer ourselves that same level of compassion. You know, that inner critic kicks in, that imposter syndrome kicks in. We we can be really kind of hard on ourselves at times, so... Absolutely. I mean, um, and especially if you come from geographical areas or faith-based areas or uh, social norm areas where, you know, we're already culturally critical. Mm -hmm. So, um, as I said, I came from a tiny village and I was very self-critical, very, very self-critical because of faith and religion was very strong up there and you weren't really worthy of much. It wasn't we were poor, but you weren't worthy of much. So gifts, etc., uh, were there. But learning to give self is not only uh, sort of you've got to overturn how you were developed socially as a child and a young person, even even within our own profession. You know, to get a gift is not deemed as necessary. There, there's a there's been a fabulous, uh, fascinating, not fabulous, there's been a fascinating debate on Twitter uh, last week in England um, that nurses and healthcare workers are being told in a few organisations not to be drinking whilst on duty from the, the fluid trolley or the sort of hydration centre. When did fluid trolleys become hydration centres? Anyway, so that aside, um, how do you expect nurses to survive a shift if they're not allowed to take their own water bottle to the nurse's station? Well, or don't get me started on this one. <laughs> it's a control infection reason. I'm saying, yes, but you've got dehydrated nurses. <laughs> yeah. And... Uh, also, if, if patients or colleagues saw nurses drink fluids or eat the occasional piece of fruit, then that's making every contact count and would inspire them that the fluids are okay to drink. So loads of things were going through my mind. And it took me back to the olden days at ARI when, you know, we all knew that nurses took breakfast off the trolley, but you were never allowed to you are never allowed to sit down and have a cup of tea with the patients. Mm. Um, and they said, well, you know, it's a social skill. It, it's a connection. So um, 
it's fascinating how self-care, even during COVID, is being debated in England. And it, currently it's all about fluids. And it's like, oh, goodness, just let nurses drink with patients, you know. So- a basic human need. We wouldn't deny our patients fluid, would we? It'd be like, well, that's neglect and God knows what else, you know? But yet they're expecting us to neglect ourselves by not drinking. Yes. I mean, yeah. I can regularly, and this is not something I'm proud of, Kenny, I can regularly do a 12-hour shift without going to the bathroom because I let myself get that dehydrated. I'm just so busy. I'm not allowed to have a water bottle in the recovery room. I have to go out to the staff room to get a drink. And if we've constantly got patients with like LMAs and that, we can't get out there. You can't walk away. So Yeah. yeah, and I wake up in the night with that like dry mouth, like reaching for water yes. because I'm that dehydrated. And I'm like, what is yeah. going on? This is so wrong. The, the interesting thing for me that was is it's, it's not been the nurses that have raised it. It's been the student nurses. Oh, okay. The student nurse voice has, has roared and said, I'm a student nurse, I'm being told on placement, I'm not allowed to have a water bottle by the nurse's station, and I'm not allowed to drink fluids with the patient. And they said, thank goodness, nurses, nursing students have had their voice, but where's the nurses? Yes. So, you know, that intimidation, fear aspect. Um, so, yeah. yes. The students are obviously... Yeah, using their empowerment that they've got. They are. They're very, they're very strong on Twitter, for instance, and Instagram. And lo and behold, within two days, my my boss, Ruth May, Chief Nurse of England, she's come in and, and she said, absolutely, nurses and all others must be allowed to take fluids. Mm. You know? Um, yeah. So, yes, it's, a, it's an interesting turn of events that within 48 hours you can have a national debate and um, a supportive adaptive question that limits burnout by just tweeting, by using social movement. So maybe what we need to do about your burnout question is wh- how does social movement support self-analysis of, of burnout? That, that might that, that'd be a fascinating PhD. So that's what I'd say. There's my PhD right there. Thanks, Kenny. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, um, I'll cook you up in a couple of years and be like, excellent question. <laughs> yes, remember the question. Absolutely. But you've got it recorded. You can just rewind and, exactly. until you get to, yeah. uh, I, I don't know how far we're in, but just get to this point and uh, cut and paste it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Oh, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Can I just throw some quick questions at you before you we... You can. Um, are, these mo- are, these single, are these single question answers? You yeah, you've already answers? answered them on the form, so I'll just see if you... Oh, like, right. you know. Okay, so I speak about having a non-negotiable in my self-care. What's yours? My non-negotiable is family. So my, my non-negotiable, more recently, is family because we've lost our dog. We had to oh, we had sorry. to put our dog down. Oh, thank you for that. Uh, after an illness, and uh, very recently, my husband became paraplegic. My non-negotiable is I am my husband's husband and carer at the moment. So that's my non-negotiable. Oh, bless him! I hope he's uh, having a not too bad time of it 
Uh, he's he's a stoic Englishman, um, so prostate advanced prostate cancer, unknown, undiagnosed. Sat down on the twenty third of November, only to discover it's a T six spi- advanced spinal cancer as well because of T six lesion. But you know, we are lucky enough to have positivity, mojo, looking forward. So we've got a hashtag called hashtag Team Believe. So I you love know. That. <laughs> we're going from month to month at the moment, but yes, we're, you know, what the next 18 months, two years will be, will be, you know. Well, it's, I wish it's, it's well. It's been an interesting journey. Thank you. Journey. Thank you for that. But yeah, non-negotiable is my, I am my husband's husband. That's beautiful. I created a model of self-care because I realized very quickly when I started speaking about it that people related it with things like bubble baths, day spas. And I'm like, no, 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 there's so much more to it than this. So I broke it down into the mental, emotional, physical, spiritual, and the indulgent parts, which is the bubble baths, etc. What would be your idea of indulgent self-care? Indulgent self-care would, at the moment... It would be a visit to the park with Phil in his motorised wheelchair. That that would be my indulgent care. Yes, that would be my indulgent care. Getting out in nature. It's very. It's good Getting for the soul. Getting out in nature. Yeah. Getting out in nature, and particularly where we used to go with Bob for his walk, so we can <laughs> reminisce about Bob as well. Bob was our dog. Um, so yes, uh, getting out is indulgent at the moment for us. And the other one I was going to ask is, I spoke about earlier about how I encourage everyone to be the best versions of themselves. Who or what inspires you to be the best version of yourself? Well, uh, who or what? I think it's listening to and bearing witness to victims of trauma, abuse, and particularly those that are able to take it from victim into survivor and absolutely those that take it from survivor into thriver or warrior. I mean, if they can do it in the most vile, horrible life, shit life syndrome, then I've got nothing much to complain about in in my humble opinion. So, yes, they listening to them, bearing witness to them, believing them uh, and working through that. And and more recently at work is listening to the roar of my ethnic minority colleagues about what their, the microaggressions that they're having to listen to and hear and have always listened to and heard. So I'm doing a lot of listening to my my black, my coloured, my ethnic minority colleagues at the moment and just understanding, understanding their plight and, and their position. And, you know, that creates that feeling of wanting to be the best that I can be because of the white privilege that I've had. That's a beautiful answer. I, yeah. Oh, thank you. You're such a humble person, Kenny. It's, it's gorgeous. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me today. I've absolutely loved this conversation. I could chat to you all day, actually. But, um, well, good. <laughs> but let, let, 
let's keep connected for the sake of the Aberdonians and the Bancorians. You know, <laughs> Bancre and Gamery have never been so well connected. So <laughs> Exactly. Ah, those two little villages in the northeast of Scotland for everyone else who's thinking, what are they talking about? <laughs> Find a map. Look at Google. <laughs> Google Bankery <it. laughs> and Gamery, yes. Gamery. <laughs> or Gardenstown. Is it Gardenstown? Gardenstown will be the, yes, will be the name they look after. Both beautiful villas. If, if you're global travellers, when we can travel people, there's a tourist board in Bankery, there's a tourist board in Gardenstown. Get yourself up to the northeast coast of Scotland. You can do both of them in the same day. Yeah. Beautiful parts <laughs> of the world. Excellent. Yeah. That, that's, that's boosted the tourist trade by several million, that, Elena. <laughs> <laughs> I think it has. We're doing better than Outlander did to Scotland, eh? <laughs> well, absolutely, absolutely. Do you know what's interesting? I'm going away off on a side note now here, but West Australian government have a contract with NHS Grampian to take grad students from here who can't get grad placements in Perth. They all go over to um, ARI for a year. Marv, I'm, I'm assuming that's Perth, Australia, not yes, Perth, Perth, yeah, Perth Australia. No, Perth, yeah, Australia. Yeah. So, yeah, students who've, student nurses who've trained yeah. here in Perth who can't yeah. secure grad positions here because there's a massive shortage of them. Yeah, NHS Grampian take a, a cohort. Marvellous. Yeah, it's wonderful. Do any of them go to work in the bankery care homes? I don't know. Because <laughs> I have. <laughs> Bye, in my early days when I was a student, yeah. Because Gardenstown doesn't have a care home, our nearest one's, Edinburgh, our nearest one's Fraserborough. So but that's because yes. it's such a really tiny village. It is, it is, it's a really tiny village, but very picturesque for those of you looking for the ne your next global adventure. Yeah. Land in Aberdeen, travel to Gardenstown, then go to Bankery for your hotel, so... <laughs> You've done the triangle then. Yeah. Okay, thank you so much, Kenny. It's been an absolute pleasure. Very great and thank, your time. Thank you, to, thank you to all the listeners that are listening to this. Stick with it, keep connected, and just keep on being positive. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Happy Nurse Podcast. If you've enjoyed today's content and would like to join the Happy Nurse community, head over to Facebook and check out the Happy Nurse AU Facebook page and request to join the Happy Nurse community. Also, check out happynurse.com.au for access to free downloads and subscription to my blog. See you soon, and in the meantime, remember to always offer yourself the same compassion that you so freely give to others.